Well, good morning. We're very glad that you're here today. Uh, we are uh, looking forward to continuing our study of the, the uh, story of the Bible, also known as the five-part study, uh, in the sense that it has been used as a really effective tool to evangelize, to, to go out and take, how do you take something as big as the Bible and the message in the Bible and you condense it and be able to present it to people in such a way that they could be convicted and they could realize, hey, there's something to this and there's something that's, that's legitimate and believable and I can follow it and I can understand it. And so uh, if you'll remember, Chris uh, started out about three weeks ago uh, gave us kind of an overview of the entire thing. And then Bruce, uh, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the creation. And then last week, Kyle talked to us about from the time of Noah up through the time that uh, the children of Israel were uh, delivered from Egyptian slavery. And so uh, that's kind of where we are. If you think about the scriptures, you have about 40 writers that wrote 66 books with really one message, and that's Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about saying, He's coming. It's on the way. It's going to happen. God is going to send His Son to redeem man, to give a way for man to have a relationship with the Father. That's the whole Old Testament. And then we, have, we get to the Gospels, and in the Gospels, we get to a period where he says, he's here. Let me record his life and show you his ministry. And then finally, the epistles, after he left, the apostles then wrote about, um, about his coming and what he did and, and put in place uh, the New Testament. And so you can kind of see there was a period of time of about 2,500 years that God dealt with, with man simply by going to a single individual and saying, here's what I want you to do. And remember, he went to Noah and he said, I want you to build an ark to the saving of your house. It took him over a hundred years. But through faith, he continued on that journey and he did that. He went to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to leave this country and I want to show you a land that I'm going to make, I'm going to make your seed as as large as the sands of the sea and you're going to inherit your, your family, your inheritance is going to inherit this land. I want you to leave where you live and I want you to go see that. Now, it wouldn't make any sense for them to have flipped it, would it? So when God went to Noah and said, I want you to build an ark, he wouldn't have left to go see the land because that, hadn't, that wasn't what God told him to do. So we understand that, that in this period of the fathers, God dealt with man individually and he said, here's what I want you to do and they would carry out that. Why? Because they had faith. So then we get to a time where we're talking about the age of Moses and this is going to be a period, not of family religion, but of national religion. That the religion of man centers around this little, little nation that was Israel. That's probably, uh, I believe the scriptures at the time they were freed from Egypt, they had about 600 men that were a fighting age, or 600,000 men of fighting age. And so they probably were well over a million. But by, by standards, they weren't a huge nation of people. And so this age of national religion, 
the, the, the children of Israel, the law of Moses, was going to exist until the coming of Christ, about in John chapter 20, where that's to us. And so we find ourselves at the age of Moses. And remember that they had just been delivered from Egyptian slavery. That God came and he put ten plagues upon the Egyptians, the last being uh, the Passover, where the firstborn of all those Egyptians were killed. And the Israelites were spared because of the Passover, and they had taken of a, a blood of a lamb, and they had put it over the lamp, po uh, the post of the house, and and so the, the the death angel, as they came, he would see that, and he would pass over that house, and he he would not kill the inhabitants of that particular house. And so finally, Pharaoh said, "Okay, go." And so Israel took, and they left, and they headed out. And they, they were headed toward the Red Sea. Pharaoh changed his mind. He sent an army to, to come and to slaughter them or to bring them back into captivity. And uh, God, Moses, stood there at the, at the banks of the Red Sea. And he said, see the salvation of the Lord. And God split that Red Sea and he allowed Israel to pass through. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's referred to as a baptism. Do you know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 refers to that passing of the children of Israel through the Red Sea as a baptism. They were baptized under the cloud and in the sea. And so they get to the other side. They've been delivered. And they go down to this Mount Sinai and they gather around this mountain. And Israel's camped there. And this is about the third month. Remember in the first month is when they were delivered. And now here we are, the third month of the year. So Moses goes up to God. He goes up to the mountain to God, and he talks to God. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down and remind Israel. Go down and remind the people what I've done for them, that I've delivered them from Egyptian slavery. You tell them that if you obey me, I will make you a peculiar treasure amongst all nations. You'll be a priest. You'll be a holy nation. You'll be separate. You'll be apart. You'll be a priest in the sense that, that people of the world will see God through you. That was his promise. That's what a priest is. It is an intermediary between man and God. And so he's saying to this nation that you will be my intermediator, that God will be seen by other people through you. So Moses, but also he said this, he said, and just so they believe you, I'm going to come down and speak to the people myself. So Moses go to, goes down and he says to them, he tells the people what God says, he reminds them of deliverance and all that, they'll be a holy nation if they obey. And so what did they say? And all the people answered together and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do. So God comes to them and he comes down upon this mountain and Abraham and he told God this. He said or God told Moses this. He said on the third day I'm going to come. So it's going to take 3 days. I want you to go down and prepare the people for my visit. And on the third day I'm going to come and I want you to tell them that wash their clothes. Get clean. 
men were not to go to their wives. They were to remain pure at that moment. God said to them that I want you to, to put a, a border around that mountain so that when, when I come down, they don't step on that mountain because if they cross those boundaries and get on that mountain, they'll die. So Moses did that and he prepared the way for, for God to come and to speak to his chosen people. And when the appointed time was arrived, God came down in the form of fire upon that mountain such that the, the mountain really began to, to smoke and it was on fire. And so you can imagine there was also a trumpet that sounded and it says it waxed louder and louder and louder. There was, it, the earth was shaking. You can imagine, here's these people, this nation of people, Israel, that is seeing all of this unfold before them and the thundering and lightning and, and the, the loudness of the trumpet. And then Moses speaks to God and God speaks back. And this event, you can imagine how scary that must have been. So here was the people's response. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sounds of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. Wasn't any worry about them getting on that mountain. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. That's how scary that was. Now probably most of us think, that would be neat to hear the voice of God. Frightening, scary, beyond our wildest ability to comprehend what that was like. But it was so frightening that they said, Moses, don't ever put us through that again. And so from this time forward, God doesn't speak to the people directly, but he speaks through these prophets. And you're going to see that that's kind of, a, that's kind of the way that the, the Old Testament unfolds from this point forward. We know that Moses then went back up into the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments. And God put those on a stone for him and he carried them down to the people. And you know what he found? When he got down there, he found that the people had grown impatient because they were afraid he wasn't going to come back. And what had they done? They had built this golden calf that they were beginning to worship. I remember just a few verses earlier we had just showed that the people said, all that God says we will do. And now here we find them just a few days later. What are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. So you might think, oh, they're not very bright, are they? But think about us. How many times on a Sunday do we come in and we fellowship and worship together? And then by Monday afternoon, we're saying things or thinking things or watching shows or, or laughing at crude jokes or whatever, the, whatever it is that's not Christian, not appropriate. Same kind of thing, isn't it? So he gets these Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments can be divided really into two different categories. One of them is it deals with man's relationship with God. That's the ones there on, the, on your left. And then the ones on the right is man's relationship with man.
So when you say, don't serve other gods, well, they'd already blown that one. Uh, don't worship idols, they did that. Uh, don't take the name of God in vain. So all of these things are related to man's relationship with God. And then those on the right, honor your parents, don't kill, don't, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Those are things that deal with the relationship between man and other men. And so we might, we might ask ourselves, what does this have, since we're, we're dividing this up into covenants, why does all of this matter? If I'm going to try to evangelize someone and bring them to Christianity, why does it matter for me to go back and to, to establish this Old Testament uh, foundation? Why is that important? Well, and it's, the reason is, is God's nature is the same. God's nature never changes. God is the same today and yesterday and tomorrow. He won't change. You know, years ago when I was a basketball coach, I spent a ton of time evaluating video because I wanted to look, I didn't I knew that a coach could change his strategy so what I watched in a video might be different a team might play man-to-man -man one time and they might play a zone the next they might try to press one game and they might not the next but you know what couldn't change players habits and I knew that and so if I watched enough video I could see what players like to do and if I knew their habits, I could adjust accordingly. Now, God's not our competition, and we're not by any means trying to outsmart Him. But we're trying to understand who we're dealing with and what are the principles on which, which He's based His very existence upon. And so if we can understand Him in the past, we, it'll help us frame our understanding of Him for us today. In fact, Paul says this pretty plainly in Romans chapter 15, that whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Now, who's he writing to? The church there at Rome. They were written there for our learning that we, should pay, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The example of the Ten Commandments is, is one such where it fits in this category. Remember that that God, that those Ten Commandments can be divided into two things. Well, look at the words of Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 22. He says, um, You shall love your Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandments. Sound familiar? And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. So if we go back a couple of slides, it's the same kind of idea, isn't it? Jesus is really summarizing the Ten Commandments into these two components, relationship with God, relationship with fellow man. So again, similarities that you see between the, the Old Testament and the New. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Romans chapter uh, 11 says this, though. It says, Consider the goodness and severity of God. Well, which is it? Is he, is he good or is he severe? The answer is yes. He's both. 
he says this, he says, the severity of God on who fell, severity, but toward you goodness, and I think this is the key word here, if you continue in his goodness. In other words, doing what you've been commanded to do. Deuteronomy chapter 11 says, Behold, I set before you a, today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I commanded you. So again, you see this idea of blessing and curse. And I think, you know, in today's world, there's a lot of people that have a problem with that, and they think that, oh, God is just good, and He loves us, and He wants... He does. All true. But they're missing part of the story is that He's also a severe God that's, that means what He says. That's just a bigger part of His nature as the loving part. So we, we now find that, so after they stayed there at the mountain for about a year, they then left. Well, let me go, let me go into this. So then we know that as, as the, the uh, old law was given to Moses, part of that was the establishment of the tabernacle. Now, I remember when I was uh, a young Christian and I was reading, I decided I was going to read the Bible. So I started in Genesis and I, I got into Exodus and I got into about Exodus 34 and Exodus 35. You know what's Exodus 34 and 35? The tabernacle. I will tell you that without any context for understanding it, the tabernacle, the reading of the tabernacle, is some of the driest reading that you could do. It, it is. I'll just be honest. If you don't really understand what you're reading, it's like, what does this mean to me and why is it in here? will come to find out that all of this stuff, every bit of it, shows a shadow of, of Christ. This, this is, this is a, a picture of kind of what the tabernacle looked like. And you see here there's this, uh, this thing was the, the brazen altar on which they sacrificed the animals. It's representative of the cross where the Lamb of God was sacrificed. The, the labor here, this this tub that, uh, that it contained water, that the priest washed both himself and the meat before he entered into the, the holy place, representing baptism. Inside of that tent there, there were two compartments. There was this most holy place, which is the, the part to the left, and then there was the holy place. Now, the most holy place is where God's presence was with Israel. You see that Ark of the Covenant in there? So the Ark, of the, the Ark of the Covenant was a box, and in that box was the law. And there was what was called the mercy seat as a lid to that, that uh, Ark of the Covenant. Why is it a mercy seat if it's on top? It's because that's where God sat. Because there had to be mercy between the law and God for man to be able to withstand it. And so we see this priest in here. And daily, what they would do is, is they would take care of this oil-burning lamp, which is called the, the candlestick. The candlestick, by the way, is this thing right here. And it's symbolic of the Word of God because it represents God's... It lit the tabernacle. 
And just like the, the Word of God lights the world today in the church, that lit the tabernacle. There's the, the table of showbread, which was symbolic of the Lord's Supper or communion with God. And then the, the closest thing, now think about this, the closest thing to the presence of God, which is over here, the closest thing to it was this little altar of incense, which represents prayer. Think about that. The closest you and I get to God is when we're in prayer to Him. So that's, the, that's kind of the, the function of that, uh, of that structure. That's the way it was designed. And so one of the things that, that, uh, that they did is the priest would go in and they, that altar of incense, let me go back to that. The altar of incense, they had to bring in some coals to, to create the fire for that. And that came from the brazen altar that was out front. So it came from here. So then we, have, we get to the, the story of, of uh, Nadab and Abihu. They were sons of Aaron, and each took a censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So where did they get that fire? Apparently it wasn't from that brazen altar that he had commanded them. He got it from someplace else. And so this was displeasing to God. Now you might think, well, wait a minute. This is the, these are the nephews of Moses. These are connected people. These are people that are they're, they're priests. But see, God doesn't look at man like you and I. He's not a respecter of persons. And so whether it's, it's your fault or my fault or Moses' fault, or, he's never been a, a respecter of persons. And so when people do things that are not according to his, to his will, they pay a price for that. So the fire went out from the tabernacle and it devoured them. So they, they did this and they died. Now I want you to notice that there was not in any, anywhere, in there, you can look through that passage, there's not anything in there that says, thou shall not get your fire from some other location. It's not in there. God told them, here's what you do. You, you get it from the brazen altar, you take it to the altar of incense, and you use it there. They didn't do that, and guess what happened? They died for it. So one of the things that you would, if you were evangelizing with this tool, one of the things you would want to establish is the law of exclusion, that when God says to do something one way, that excludes all other ways that man might think of that would be easier or better or cheaper or smarter or faster or look cooler or whatever it is that when God says do something a certain way to do it in a different way even though to us it may seem right that's not an act of faith and God's not pleased with that. So again we see there's a there is a there's a goodness to God, but also there's a severity. And uh, Nadab and Abihu found out the hard way that that was true. So after that, they traveled to the land that they were promised. And when they got there, they decided they would send in, they were going to scout out the land, and they sent in these 12 spies to look at the land and, 
And uh, one of the things they were going to do is they were going to look at Jericho. And they were going to determine, can we take this land? Because God's told us that we're supposed to do that. So they're supposed to go in and take this promised land. They send these 12 spies out, and they're gone for about 40 days, and they come back, and they have a split report. There are 10 of them that say, man, these guys are giants. We cannot beat these guys. There are two of them that says, with God's help, with God leading us, we should go in and we should take it. Caleb and Joshua, those two men, those were two, the two spies. So guess who the people listened to? They listened to the ten. They decided they're right. It's too scary. We can't do it. And so they chose that they would not go in. And I want you to notice God's response to that. God said this. He says, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 12 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I, I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. So God looked at them and he saw that they had, they had not followed him. They did not trust him. And because of that, all of those people who had been delivered from Egyptian slavery were going to die out there in that wilderness except two that he found that were righteous. And that was, that was Caleb and Joshua. And they would lead the people in. So again, we find that uh, the severity of God was experienced by Nahum, uh, Nadab and Abihu and faithless, faithless Israel, and the goodness of God was experienced by Joshua and Caleb. So it sounds like God is going to punish sin. God's going to punish sin, and He is going to punish sin. But I want you to notice he made some provisions for us. In Numbers chapter 15, he talks about unintentional sins, sins that were done out of ignorance, sins that were done because they were overtaken in a fault, sins that, that were done not out of hardness of heart, but rather out of mistakes, rather out of doing something that was unintentional or, or ignorant. And so in that passage, we see that the priest would make atonement for the whole congregation of Israel and it shall be forgiven them because the offense was, they were to take a, a, a calf and they were, to, they were to sacrifice it. And that sacrifice God would look at and he would take that to make them right. He would forgive them that sin. But then there's this other case in Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30 and 31. He says, but the person who does anything presumptuously. Now what that really means is, you do it intentionally. You do it out of a out of a hearty heart. You do that out of not just I'm going to do it because I want to do it. I know that it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. He says whether he is a native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach upon the Lord, 
he should be cut off among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and broke his commandment. So we find this story of this guy, an example of that. We find this guy that on the Sabbath day was going out to pick up sticks. Now that doesn't sound like a very much of a bloodthirsty activity, but it was the fourth commandment. God had said on the Sabbath day they were not to work. So we find this guy was working on the Sabbath day. What was his, what was his sentence? And the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp, because he did it deliberately. He did it out of a defiant heart. I'll just say that this, this type of passage is, is frightening to me because it tells how many of us have, are guilty of sometimes knowing that we shouldn't do something and we do it anyway. Guilty. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it many times. Knowing that it's wrong, knowing that God's not going to be pleased and doing it anyway. This guy was stoned outside the camp for that. So they come to Jericho in this great city. It, they said that this thing was double walled. It, it, it had two walls. It had a wall and an inner, an inner wall. So almost an impenetrable city. So there was a harlot there that, that uh, the spy, there were two spies that were dispatched to go into the land and they went into Jericho. And they got in the city and they went to this harlot's house. Her name was Rahab. And they go there to Rahab, and Rahab knows about Israel. That's one thing. She knew about him, and she said, We fear you. She said, we know, we know your God, and we know your God delivered you from Egypt, and we know that you fought with the Amorites, and they were a bigger and stronger people than you, and yet you overcame them, and we fear your God, and I fear your God. And so she hid them. She agreed to hide them. Even though the king's men began to look for, for him, for these two guys, he, she didn't give them up. She hit them, kept them there for three days, and then sent them about their way to go home. And so they, they told her, they said, okay, if you keep your part of the agreement and don't give us up to the king, then I want you to hang a scarlet line a scarlet ribbon from, from your window. And by doing so, we know that when we come and siege the city, that anybody that comes running out of that house will be spared. So just thinking about that, that's what they said, a scarlet ribbon. What if it had been purple? Color my tie. Think that would have done it? God means what he says. And so when the children of Israel told, when, when these two spies told her that, that's what she had to do if she wanted her house to be saved. And they were saved because she did what God told her to do. So they're going to they're gonna attack the city. They're going to take over this great city that is fortified. He, here's God's plan. You're going to march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. You shall do that for six days. And the seventh priest shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns 
before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. That's not much of a military strategy, is it? You know, that's the thing about God is he, sits, he sets up impossible situations where man cannot take credit. Think about that. He sits, this is another part of his nature, is he sets up these situations where man cannot take credit for that. Only an act of God is going to make this plan work. And is it going to take faith to execute this plan? It's going to take incredible faith to execute this plan. And yet that's exactly what the people do. And so when they, when they execute God's plan, the walls come down and they go in and they capture this great city that they had been promised. So believing God and following Him, even when it doesn't feel right, is right. So again, going back to our chart, we find those that face the severity and the curse of God and those that were blessed and experienced the goodness of God. Caleb, Joshua, Caleb, faithful Israel, and then uh, Rahab the harlot because all of these acted in faith. So after that, he gave the judges, he gave them judges. So God set up a, a, a kingdom in Israel that was going to be, he was going to be the king, and these judges, like Samuel, Deborah, Jephthah, those, those guys would be judges of Israel for a period of some uh, 450 years until Samuel the prophet came. So, just in summary, Israel gives the law at Mount Sinai. The key principles of God's nature is God is constant. He doesn't change. He's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Uh, God is both good and severe. He means what He says. He loves you. He loves me. And He's given us a way to have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus. But He's also a severe God that if we don't obey, He's also going to punish us. We don't need a thou shall not to know not to do something. If you can establish this, this is the way God said do it, then all other ways ought to be excluded because God said do it this way. God often used impossible circumstances to demonstrate His power with the people. And God rewards the faithful. So my question this morning to us is what about our hearts? Are our hearts right with God? Are we doing the right things by Him? Are we living a faithful life and trusting Him as our guide? Or do we do what we want to do? Are we like the children of Israel that came down when Moses came down from the mountain with the, with the Ten Commandments that he looks down on these people and he finds that they've already built this, this idol and they're worshiping that? So do we go out on Monday or Tuesday and we're worshiping job, money, promotion, power, wealth, anything you want, you know, name it. That becomes our God. So we've got, we've got to live in such a way that will please the Lord. And so I call you to do that. If the church can help you in any way, 
we would uh, invite you to come forward. If there's any that uh, have, have heard the lesson and feel like they need to be assisted by, in baptism and you feel like you've been sufficiently taught, we can, we can help you with that. Or if one needs the prayers of the church, if either, we have one of either more of either case, we'd ask you to come forward as we stand and sing together.